Thank you, and welcome to our book forum today at the Cato Institute on Jeff Kossif's latest book, Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. My name is Jennifer Huddleston, and I'm a Technology Policy Research Fellow here at the Cato Institute. I'm joined today by the author himself, as well as two excellent panelists, to discuss this topic more generally, as well as this book in particular. For those of you who are joining us online, at the end of the conversation, we will take questions both online and in person, and you may join the conversation and submit questions directly on the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, or on X, formerly known as Twitter, using the hashtag Cato1A. Before we start, I'd like to introduce our panelists a little bit. Starting to my left, we have Jeff Kossif. Jeff is an associate professor of cybersecurity law at the United States Naval Academy's Cyber Science Department. He is the author of four books and more than 20 academic journal articles. In 2019, he was named an Andrew Carnegie Fellow by the Carnegie Corporation of New York to support his 2022 book. His books include The United States of Anonymous, How the First Amendment Shaped Online Speech, and The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Next to Jeff is Will Duffield, who is an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, where he studies speech and internet governance. His research focuses on web government regulation and private rules that govern American speech online. Prior to becoming a policy analyst, he worked at the Cato as a research assistant to John Samples, and he has a BA from Sarah Lawrence College and, and an MS in political theory from the London School of Economics. Finally, we're joined by Professor Catherine Ross. Professor Ross is the Lyle T. Alverson Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. She specializes in constitutional law with a particular emphasis on the First Amendment and family law. Professor Ross's books include A Right to Lie, Presidents, Other Liars, and the First Amendment, and Lessons in Censorship, How Schools and Courts Subvert Students' First Amendment Rights. So I know this will be a very exciting and timely discussion, most likely, because Jeff, you seem to have a unique ability to predict what the next big debate in online speech is going to be. We saw this with your book on Section 230. We saw this with your book on anonymous speech. Now we're here to talk about misinformation. So what made you write this book now? And, and what should those of us who are uh, focused on the issue of online speech perhaps be preparing for? Sure, well, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. I just have to first give the disclaimer. Everything I say is only on my behalf, not on behalf of the Naval Academy, Department of Navy, or Department of Defense, and you'll probably understand within a few minutes of me talking why it's so important for me to say that. Um, and in terms of why I wrote this book, it actually originated from my previous books, and in particular, my book about Section 230, um, which I guess was published five years ago, it feels like a few lifetimes ago, um, back when it was really hard to get an academic press to think that Section 230 was, had enough of a market that anyone knew what it was, because at the time it was more of an obscure tech policy issue and not something that you would hear on the presidential campaign trail. But things have changed uh, quite a bit, and you had proposals since, within those five years, you've had dozens of proposals to change Section 230. And uh, some of them came from the right, 
which was to sort of condition platforms 230 protections on their ability to, on the ability of users to post unmoderated content. Um, that wasn't really as much as where this originated from as from the criticism from the left, which was primarily looking at how do we amend Section 230 to stop speech that we don't like. Um, speech like misinformation, sometimes hate speech, um, and a lot of them were really legitimate concerns. Um, but what I kept hearing time and again most frequently was misinformation. And this was a very valid concern. This is post-2016, post-2020. Uh, real concerns about the harms of misinformation. And what I kept hearing was, well, if we didn't have Section 230, then the platforms would be held accountable for misinformation. And to a certain extent, that could be true if there were a narrow category of misinformation like defamation. Because that, I mean, Section 230 does shield platforms from defamation claims based on user content. But what it doesn't do is shield platforms from misinformation claims in general because there's no such thing. And what I would point out time and again is that most of what we consider to be misinformation is constitutionally protected. And I would get a lot of responses, not particularly enthusiastic ones, um, but part, some of what I got was, well, why is it protected? And that's really what got me looking at writing this book is why do we why does the first amendment protect misinformation and so that got me going down a lot of different rabbit holes uh, about all the possible cases involving falsehoods possible falsehoods things we thought were false at one point but ended up being true at another point and i wanted to really uh do two things i wanted to look at what is the extent of legal protections for false speech, which is primarily the First Amendment in the United States, but also includes a number of common law doctrines, things like substantial truth, uh, as well as some statutes like fair, fair report privileges that are sometimes codified in statute, anti-slap laws, all of them allow, to some extent, legal protection, both civil and criminal protection for things that are alleged to be falsehoods. And I wanted to look at Rather than just sort of look at the doctrine, I wanted to look at the reasoning. So why do the courts uh, protect false speech? And there's obviously the marketplace of ideas framework is the most prominent, but we have other reasons as well, such as you know that there's always gonna be some uncertainty as to what's true or false at any particular time. You think about what we knew in the earliest days of the COVID pandemic and what the government guidance was and we were all washing our hands for five minutes at a time because the guidance was that COVID was not airborne. And in the United States, at least, we were able to still have those discussions. And as the scientific consensus changed, so did the sentiment. But we were able to discuss those opposing views. You also think about the lab leak theory and how that was considered pretty fringe at one point. And now it's at least more of a standard portion of the debate about the origins of COVID. So um, there are other reasons as well. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's classified as misinformation, which actually can be very harmful, but it's not provably true or false. It's really bad opinions, but the courts over the years have said people have the breathing space to save those opinions. Um, 
we also hold people responsible for how they receive speech. So, you know, are you just going to believe misinformation? Are you going to believe falsehoods? And if you do, you might have to face some consequences. And then finally, um, in many cases, regulating false speech, even if it is provably false and damaging, uh, in many cases, you're not going to even address all of the harms that you're seeking to address from misinformation. And the courts have recognized there's limits to the efficacy of misinformation. So I wanted to really kind of go through the different threads of cases to look at why we have those protections and apply that to current debates, and then also look at what are possible solutions that go beyond regulation. And I, I wanna be clear, I don't make the argument that the First Amendment is absolute. Um, I think probably if I did, Hugo Black would probably be the only one who's ever agreed with me and he's dead. So I, I think I'm pretty safe that that's not gonna, I mean, we, ha we have room for regulation. We have, you can't lie in court. You can't lie to a federal agent. Uh, companies face restrictions on the advertisements for their products and all of that, I mean, it, the, the point of that is that it's narrowly defined and the court has taken uh, great efforts to make sure that there's clear guidance and that there's not just this general balancing test where we'll regulate everything that we think is harmful. Uh, the Supreme Court has said we don't do that and that's unlike many other jurisdictions. So uh, I wanted to look at that and then say, well, what are some areas in addition to regulation that we could be looking at? And the bottom line, I, I try to be really transparent in the book. None of them are perfect. None of them are close to perfect. Um, the, but I don't think even with the most regulation possible, you're going to be able to address all of these problems. But I look at things that might help chip away and help make us a bit more resilient to misinformation. So things like making sure people are more literate uh, in terms of for media literacy so they can better evaluate the torrent of information they're seeing on social media, uh, improving civics education, uh, having better access to counter speech, uh, giving platforms the leeway to moderate free of government pressure. But I mean, we have a case going to the Supreme Court right now where depending on how it term, turns out, platforms might actually have less of an ability to independently determine what content that, that they carry. And I think that would be very dangerous. Um, so again, I don't think that, and, and then finally I would say that the government building trust with the public. I think that is very important. And I think when you erode trust, then misinformation can take hold more easily. And I think there are some examples where the US government and other governments have actually built trust quite effectively, but unfortunately there are many examples where just basic messaging and transparency and honesty would have gone a long way in having the public better accept what the government is saying rather than just reflexively believing uh, nonsense that they see on the internet. So that's kind of the motivation for the book. And for the title, um, I'll say uh, Catherine actually had the better title. I, 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 I think that that's, uh, <laughs> if Catherine's book hadn't come out, I probably would have titled it that because I think it really is a right to lie. And I think there's a lot of uh, value in saying, what is the right to lie? I title, my title actually originated halfway through my research because as I was researching all of these cases where courts said to the government or to a plaintiff, hey, you can't hold someone liable for that. We don't do that. 
I, I like looking at the briefs and the transcripts of the court hearings. In almost every single case, there was a lawyer saying, uh, defending their proposed censorship by saying, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, so therefore you also can't say this. And usually you could say this. So um, as I was writing it, I just thought, well, if, if I can't have a right to lie, uh, I will, I, I think, why, tying it to the fire in a crowded theater, I've got to do that because that is such a dangerous phrase and politicians, lawyers, the media use it whenever they want to justify regulation of speech. So um, that's kind of a higher level overview, but I'm happy to talk about specifics. Yeah, I know we'll get into some great specifics that, that you just teed up in, in terms of where this conversation is right now. But Catherine and Will, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts both on the book as well as on this kind of issue more in, in general of this kind of debate that's going on on misinformation. I know you're both experts in this field. What resonated with you most in this book and what did you think of, of some of the ideas it proposes? Catherine, I'll start with you. Great. Before I start, I just want to say I, I had the opportunity to read the book in manuscript form and I emailed Jeff and I said the book was terrific, fun to read, and really wide-ranging and well-researched and I stand by those comments. So. <laughs> wouldn't put that out there. Um, so we, we um, share a lot of the same uh, values about why we should not be attacking the First Amendment or ignoring it, as many people are tempted to do in our current climate. And Jeff does a really good job of accomplishing his goal and explaining why we got to this point in our doctrine. What are the uh, doctrinal theories underlying the premises of the First Amendment? Um, whereas I focused more on what the First Amendment actually says about untruths, and I was more limited in my scope to the uh, lies that are about verifiable facts, and, and Jeff ranges more broadly to things that are um, misleading and perhaps uh, less susceptible to precise evaluation, and one of the ideas I found most interesting and that he addressed just now is the uncertainty about emerging um, knowledge, that we believe something to be verifiable or falsifiable today, and then we learn more. But I also think that's part of the whole notion of the marketplace of ideas, that if we put a lot of ideas out there, the marketplace, Holmes assumed, would usually reach the correct result. And of course, one of the great risks is that the marketplace buys the falsehood and not what is verifiable. Um, but with respect to science in particular, um, we, we do learn and adjust. And so one of the questions we might want to ask about dealing with falsehood is, what did you know at the time, which I'm not adapting from in the congressional inquiry uh, and impeachment arena, but rather, was this something that scientists agreed was the principle? And then in subsequent research, we learn otherwise, will we adjust our thinking? And the principle of truth and falsehood can only apply to what we now know, and we, we learn things and learning is good. We have paradigm shifts, and some people are still saying you should wash your hands, including the CDC. 
Um, but I, I want to suggest I'm very interested in Jeff's approach to what are some things we can do about uh, untruths in various contexts. And he has two chapters that address that. One is primarily about political speech and things the government can do. And of course, one of the basic First Amendment principles, which Jeff doesn't uh, pinpoint exactly this way, but the most forbidden thing is the government as the arbiter of truth. So whenever there's a government regulation, first the government has to say, we officially declare one thing to be true and the other not to be true. That's the underlying problem with any form of government regulation that attempts to address untruth. And of course, there's a lot of gray areas about what's true, what's not true, how we read it, responsibility of readers. But I wanted to take some of the things from his last chapter, which is about what mostly private people can do in responding to disinformation and misinformation and apply it to a very contemporary problem, which is the disputes over the current war between Hamas and Israel. So there are some facts that we know to be true, and I dare say there are people, perhaps in this room or watching this, who would disagree with me in what I say are facts. But the first is Hamas broke the ceasefire that had been in place when it crossed the border and massacred people sleeping in their homes. And, you know, there are people saying, never happened, fake news, AI, or they're quibbling over the substantial truth. Were children actually roasted in ovens? Does that matter? How many children were beheaded? How many children were killed in front of their mothers after their mothers' breasts were cut off? Well, substantial truth doctrine should govern here. We shouldn't be arguing about those specifics of the 1,400 people who died. Another fact is, turns out, Israel didn't bomb that hospital killing 500 people. Hamas misfired a rocket. And people continue to point to that event. Facts, facts. We're going to have questions later. So, um, you know, people keep posting about both of these things and talking about them publicly, including members of Congress. So what recourse? And would these things that Jeff suggests help? And I'm very frustrated at their ability to help in this kind of extreme situation. So self-help. More and better speech seems ineffective. Right now, I'm trying to offer better speech. I'm interrupted. Uh, views are locked in. People go to information silos, both online and um, in, in what they read. People are ripping down posters. That's the heckler's veto. And here, there's an interesting anecdote. Uh, there was a YouTube of two young women ripping down posters in Brooklyn, New York, uh, of the pictures of the hostages. And um, they were asked, why are you doing that? And they said, because the posters are lies and they might provoke someone to commit an act of violence. So we're trying to avoid violence by ripping them down. Private litigation, I don't think anybody has standing to talk about things like a tort, intentional infliction of emotional damage. Um, or defamation, and even if they could, it takes too long. Look at the recent Dominion versus Fox case. 
the result came a long time after the damage was already done. Speech from the government. Yes, the government can take sides and it can make clear statements. So the government of the US has said, you know, we've concluded Israel didn't bomb the hospital. We believe the tapes we have seen of the massacre. Um, uh, I, you can you can ask questions and make comments later. Well, I'd I'd like to to go ahead and bring Will into this yeah, conversation. Can I, just, I, like, yes, I need one more minute, um, but that requires transparency and trust and citizen education, all things that Jeff has talked about, um, and that leaves accountability, which is really important. That when people act illegally based on lies and disinformation, they should be held to account by the criminal justice system. So when these kinds of lies lead to violence, um, whether assault, murder, um, damage to property, etc., they they should be punished. The, the listener has responsibility. Well, I know you've also done a lot of work on these kind of debates around online misinformation, and as well as kind of different tools available to the government. I was curious. You know, what was your initial reaction to the book and, and what particularly resonated with you? Well, I really enjoyed the truth and, and uncertainty chapters. And, you know, Catherine and I didn't uh, write our speeches together or anything, but I just thought Jeff did such a wonderful job of illustrating the messiness of speech, the kind of irrepressible ambiguity and subjectivity of human communication, and showcasing all of the ways in which we use our speech you know, not just to try to convince others, but to express our own feelings, to showcase a part of ourselves, and, and how difficult that can be in the public arena uh, to quite interpret what someone is trying to do to respond to it appropriately and to govern that kind of communication appropriately. So I, I think he does a great job at showing how the gaps between a speaker's intended message or purpose for speaking and how their expression is understood by listeners can generate controversy and litigation. Uh, say how Alvarez's private braggadocious self-bolstering, an impulse we can all understand, even if we don't quite take it to the lengths of uh, pretending to have a, a war record, um, can in the context of local politics become a lie of public concern. So, as a result, because he just does such a great job at, at getting into what was said, who, who it rankled, why it was controversial at the time, his descriptions of the contours of First Amendment jurisprudence that emerge are immediately backed with compelling stories explaining why the law curves as it does. Here, I particularly liked his description of the substantial truth doctrine he uses an example that implicates not just conflicting contemporary accounts or opinionated descriptions of current events, but memory, how different persons recall things that might have happened many years ago. In this case, the musician Eminem's memories of being bullied and how they clashed with his childhood bullies' memories of, well, bullying him, but maybe not as harshly as Eminem remembered. And this was the, the subject of litigation, and Eminem's account in his song, um, in which he mixed 
partially true experiences that had happened to him with embellishments for the sake of providing a good story, creating an enjoyable experience for listeners, and fully expressing how he felt about being bullied, whether or not every described event occurred exactly as it did, fits into this substantial truth doctrine. We, we can immediately see, by virtue of this example, why this is valuable not just to the speaker, but to the public writ large. Um, you know, if I would, would offer any criticism here and, and of these, these kind of segments and, and examples, it's that Jeff doesn't dig into the counterfactuals far enough. What would the world look like if we can't have, you know, not just fewer weather forecasts, but maybe constant couched maybes and, and uncertainty built into our weather forecasts so that no one makes absolute decisions and puts themselves in harm's way on the basis of it? Or not just fewer songs about bullying, but maybe only songs about bullying by people who never experienced it and therefore can't have a bully out there who can come in and, and litigate what exactly was said, what was done in middle school 20 years ago. Um, so a, a, across these examples, it really came through for me, even when you know, Jeff didn't explicitly spell it out in the book, just what a more limited, kind of grayer, less interesting world uh, we would live in under a stifling cludge of mandatory fact-checking or couched mealy statements. Um, how long would we have to wait for books about mushrooms and cooking to come out if every publisher and republisher had to send a team out into the wilds to check whether each mushroom was described accurately? Uh, there would just be far too many veto points in society, um, or certainly around speech. and. As a result, I, um, I, I, that, that point just came through for me so well throughout those sections that speech is messy and uncertain. We can't always be sure what is true. And as a result, both in the common law and in interpreting our constitution, we've created this leeway to give speakers, in Jeff's words, the necessary breathing room to speak. And finally, on truth, if I still have a minute or so, um, the, the question of not just what is provable, uh, what, what is truth and how do we know it, but when we know it um, really came alive to me in, in this manuscript. Uh, he mentioned some of the COVID examples where science corrected quite, quite quickly. Um, I think we went from skepticism of masks to uh, government may be pushing masks a little too hard in, in the course of a few months, but it, it doesn't always, the process doesn't always self-correct quite as rapidly, and that makes it all the more important that we protect speech, which we aren't quite sure is true or seems like rumor. Uh, James Callender, an early American writer, pamphleteer, and propagandist who appears in this book being potentially quite obviously paid off by our second president, um, had another uh, publication around that same time about our second president, which it took nearly 150 years or more 
uh, to be proven true. Callender was the first one to write about Thomas Jefferson's affair with Sally Hemings. And at the time, this was, I think, dismissed in polite company as, as nasty ribald rumor. Uh, it probably didn't make it into the book because it wasn't litigated. Jefferson's camp kept awfully quiet about this. Um, but for nearly 150 years, biographers of Jefferson, eminent historians, kind of swept the whole thing under the rug, ignored evidence that, that proved, um, or would seem to prove the Hemings story true. And it wasn't until we got Jefferson's farm book in, I believe, the 1960s, and all of the dates of Hemings' pregnancies matched up with, well, nine months before, Jefferson, who traveled all over the place, had always been home at Monticello. And DNA testing is further proven that this you know, nasty political rumor was indeed fact. And our, our American story has not just become more true, but our understanding of this, this founding father, our second president, is so much richer for it. And the idea that you know, today, if something were like that were published and, and truly or more effectively memory hold and not kept alive, we could lose it entirely. Uh, to me, illustrates that, that value of protecting things that we might think are false, but history or, or the future may prove us wrong. Thank you. Uh, I'll just give the disclaimer that if you ever want to use an Eminem lyric in your book, be prepared to pay a very large license fee. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned that because it was a painful amount that I had to wow. deal with for that. So. You know, I, I, it will make it resonate more with, with some of us, particularly in the millennial generation, that, that this is an example to, to use. Um, I, I would like to, to, to turn to the, the panel in general. We've heard the term First Amendment a lot in our conversation, and that certainly is a, a big part of this discussion when it comes to what's going on in the United States. What, if anything, uh, does or does not fall under the, the First Amendment with some of these challenges we're facing. However, this is a global debate as well, and the context of online speech does not exist merely in the United States, and it exists in places where there's a very different approach to speech than the First Amendment. I was wondering if our panelists could reflect a little bit on, on some of the debates and some of the actions perhaps we're seeing around the ideas of misinformation globally and, and how this framework, uh, Jeff, you propose, may or may not work outside of a, a US context. Yeah, so unfortunately, I don't know if the, the protections that I advocate retaining uh, many of them, I don't know uh, how long they would survive, if at all, in many other countries. And I'm not just talking about places like Russia and uh, other authoritarian countries, but um, we, we have in the European Union, they've always had a different balance between free expression and privacy and other values. Um, but they have a law that went into effect this year called the Digital Services Act, which has a variety of components. Part The part that's most concerning is uh, regulation of very large online platforms. Um, and there's enough vague, vague language in it that um, the government could at least have a lot of power over the speech on these platforms because the maximum fines are 6% of annual global revenue. So that's a very large amount for any company. And we there's this, I, I don't know how he got this power, but 
there's this European commissioner who's in charge of business, but he's not elected. He was appointed by someone. And basically almost every day now, he goes onto Twitter and he threatens a platform with uh, saying, you know, we don't like how you're dealing with disinformation or hate speech. Our teams are waiting. I mean, some ominous thing. And, and I, I just think that e even if I, I don't, know if they, what the DSA really was intended for. I was assured by a lot of people who said they care about free speech, you know, this is all just procedural. Uh, you're just being an American. Stop, uh, stop worrying about this. And then within like weeks of this going into effect, he starts threatening everyone. I think other countries, it's even more concerning. They've passed fake news laws um, over the past five years. And um, in some of the more authoritarian countries, you've seen hundreds of people arrested for um, criticizing the government. And it, so, so it's, uh, I, I, a lot of the response that I get from people who aren't big fans of the protections that I'm defending is, you know, you're just kind of being hysterical, uh, you're being alarmist, but you just have to look at other parts of the world and see, you know, if you give people in power more power, um, eventually they're going to abuse it. And I, so I look at all of that with a very cautious eye. Will, to turn to you, I mean, Jeff's example sounds a lot like that regulation by raised eyebrow or, or job owning you've talked about a, a lot. What are, what are your thoughts on some of the, the perhaps sub-regulatory actions like that that we're, we're seeing? I think the difficulty is that abroad it can be formalized. So jawboning refers to informal government pressure to censor speech. We've seen some issues with it in the United States. It's come into vogue recently as a, as a concern. However, abroad it's been going on vis-a-vis -vis these social media platforms for a bit longer, but slowly formalized in a ratcheting fashion what was first a voluntary agreement between several American platforms and the European Union in, I believe, 2015 or 17, um, has, has since been formalized by various parts of the DSA to create binding obligations. And as, as Jeff alluded to, there isn't a great, you know, they don't have a First Amendment. Um, there isn't a clear recourse here for American firms that want to continue doing business abroad. Uh, we could begin geo-blocking Europe, but at the end of the day, I don't think that's um, a viable solution. And there are few ways outside of simply trying to punish Europe for behaving this way that America can effectively shield platforms which have presences there. If you have an office in Brussels or in, in France, uh, they can come and arrest people, they can take your things away, you're subject to their jurisdiction. Um, and so I'm, I'm broadly a free trader, I, I don't really want to see a ratcheting tariff war over this, but I do think that might be the context in which we need to see these demands as uh, non-tariff barriers to trade, in this case, the, the sort of crown jewels of uh, you know, American cultural offering in, in these platforms. Catherine, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, just briefly, I think the, uh, the First Amendment it would certainly be a bar to enforcing most of that act in the United States. And the biggest gap 
between our regime and that in Europe and indeed in every other English-speaking uh, democracy is our treatment of things like hate speech, which is highly regulated in Europe. And um, that is one of the things, that those kinds of falsehoods are one of the prime targets of the European Union's uh, actions. And we have seen uh, that when they enforce the uh, governmental laws against hate speech, they often do so with an ax and not a scalpel. And they often misunderstand humor and satire, and they cut off and chill a lot of speech. Um, so if our, um, if, if the platforms that emanate from the United States and which are so important to the rest of the world are gonna be regulated in Europe by fines, much more than by arrests, um, it is really hard to separate what happens to them in Europe from what happens to them in the United States. And this is not a new problem when we interpret speech that takes place all over the world. I'm not sure, uh, I haven't thought about the tariff idea, but it, it is very hard to see uh, how we protect rights in the United States for businesses that are engaged in what we, is regarded as speech internationally. And, and that's a major theoretical issue that we have yet to grapple with. Uh, a quick thought on, on hate speech there and something Jeff discusses in this book about disinformation and government truth. Uh, in, in A Liar in a Crowded Theater, he argues that when government officials or, or governments pronounce official truths, deem one thing to be true over another, it causes us, listeners, the population, to doubt that official truth or any truths going around because what's being suppressed in, in this world, why did they pick that one over another? Uh, there's this feeling of, of unfair official favor. And in the past month or so in, in Europe, um, uh, around this war in the Middle East, I've seen a lot of those kinds of claims and concerns, but around hate speech. The idea that if the police haven't enforced a given hate speech statue against this flag or that, or that statement or this, then it, it amounts to or illustrates the government's favor for one side or another. And I think in most cases, there isn't any explicit uh, attempt to favor one side over the other, but instead just idiosyncratic enforcement. There happened to be a cop on this corner, but not on that. Uh, but the ultimate effect is for people to have less faith that the government is on their side, that the law is neutral and applies to everyone. Um, and I think we, we see a similarly unhealthy dynamic there as when the government attempts to police disinformation or cement official truths and in doing so undermines faith in truth as a concept. We've talked a lot around the policy discussion and the concerns about the, the potential impact on speech from, from policymakers. I kind of want to raise this question of if an individual user or a platform is concerned about the idea of misinformation. We've talked a lot about the, the marketplace of ideas. I'm curious, what advice would our panelists have for those platforms or users who are concerned on a personal level and are, are looking at options other than government intervention on this issue? Well, I, I think that you're seeing the market play out a bit in platforms, I think now more than a few years ago, having divergent policies on a lot of these things. So the platforms are free to 
set their own policies and independent of government on things like hate speech and misinformation, and they all do. And uh, I mean, obviously X or Twitter has a very, or a some, somewhat different policies than it did a year ago. And that's its right. Uh, I mean, it, it can do that, and that's a business choice. And the sort of the, the theory under both the First Amendment and how Section 230 was structured is that platforms make these choices, and if they make choices that most of their users don't like, then they'll suffer. I mean, it's not, uh, not a perfect model because we have a lot of economic issues like network effects, which make it more difficult for people to just easily leave a platform that all of their friends or coworkers are on. But um, I, I think that that's a better way to go than having the government say, okay, this is the policy that all the platforms have to have. Um, I think in terms of individual users, I think that uh, having their voices heard on platforms policies are really important. There are some platforms, more of the smaller and mid-sized platforms that do a better job in really democratizing their user policies and letting their users have a voice. Uh, GitHub, which is used by coders, does a great job in, and it's done it for a while, where before they make changes, they solicit and they really incorporate the feedback from their very uh, frequent users. So I think that's all important. I think the jawboning issue, which has been mentioned briefly, which, and is going to the Supreme Court, that also could have an important impact on uh, platforms because I, I think it's important for the government to not coerce, coerce, not threaten platforms with retribution if they don't moderate or take down content. I also think it's important that individual users have the ability to tell platforms, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like this sort of content or I do like this sort of content. So I think it's gonna be, I, I think that case is going to be incredibly important um, for the future of online speech in the United States. Well, I, um, I'd like to talk about two recent examples of misinformation that I came across on Twitter, one very traditional and one native to the internet. And I think these two cases illustrate how certain forms of greater information density or bundling more information in a sticky fashion along with speech could help some of these disinfo problems. So in the first, someone had written a thread about alleging that Napoleon had in fact built the Great Pyramids. Now this seems ludicrous on, on its face. Um, and the thread, while sort of in, internally coherent, uh, crumbled apart when I Googled pre-Napoleonic accounts or depictions of the Great Pyramids and found that a French diplomat had in 1735 taken measurements of all of them and have been published books available in Paris of the, the Great Pyramids. So there, you know, almost easier to disprove on the internet today than it would have been if your crazy uncle had told you that in 1980 or something. Um, because there's lots of available information external to the narrative being presented that allows you to disprove it. Now, the second one, a clip posted to Twitter, but originally from TikTok, showing a woman saying or asking the, the viewer um, whether they would defend their dog from someone trying to, to steal it with lethal force. Um, when doing so was putting a dog's life above a human's life. 
and this was sort of going, being virally reposted um, with, with some criticism. Well, what is this you know, ludicrous um, humanist account that, that causes us um, or, or criticizes us for defending our pets? Um, and I noticed the handle from the original video down in the little corner. It had been clipped and shortened, but I was able to find it on TikTok. And in the original, the woman talking about putting a dog's life above a human's life ends the clip by saying, and if you do that, I'll pay for your bail. And she's a dog person, and it was meant to be funny. And that context has sort of been trimmed and collapsed as it moves off platform, um, where it becomes bait for criticism of the very attitude that the woman was, was laughing about holding. And to me, this, I was able to, to get to the bottom of this, but most users couldn't or, or wouldn't because it was much harder to find that original video and to understand the full context than it was for me to just go Google accounts of pyramids before Napoleon. But there's no reason that our video editing tools at the platform level can't include more robust information about what this video originally was and where it came from. You might not be able to include the whole rest of the video. People want to cut things, but there's no reason you can't include a transcript alongside it, a full transcript tagged to the file that moves forward even when you cut it down, or some kind of chain of custody as, as things move from one platform to another. Um, you know, not everything is hyperlinked today. I think platforms often encourage you to upload things, to keep it there, to bring the views to their platform. Um, but some form of, of link tracking, um, some way to add that additional context that was so easy to find in the pyramid example, but so hard in the TikTok dog video, would combat a lot of what makes viral online misinformation that relies on that loss of context uh, much easier to, to solve. As a consumer, first I have to say, don't come after my dog. <laughs> I love my dog. Um, but as a consumer, I am thinking about how much of my day already goes into all of the material coming into my inbox in some old-fashioned ways into my mailbox, magazines and things, the newspapers. And while I like your idea in theory, I just can't see how I would begin to process all of these lines of information about what I'm looking at. Um, you know, there, there are just human brain limitations as well as uh, time and um, capacity uh, limitations. Um, so I'm also concerned, you know, decades ago the Supreme Court said, once a lie is out there, the truth can never catch up with it. And they said that in the defamation context. And that is even more true today because if you go on one platform and you say, please take down this horrible statement or this deceptive statement, by the time it's taken down, somebody else has communicated it in many, many other tweets or X's or whatever you want to call them, and somebody else has moved it to YouTube or to Blue Sky, and it's just out there and you're never going to catch up with it. So, uh, you know, I sound very pessimistic. I am very engaged with Jeff's project 
that we find constitutionally sustainable responses, but it is such a difficult problem. There's so much more that I would love to dive into, but before we turn over to audience questions shortly, I have to ask because it wouldn't be a tech policy panel in the year 2023 if I don't bring up artificial intelligence and AI. Uh, this seems to be the, the kind of elephant in the room these days. And so I'd love the panelists' thoughts on how should we think about concerns around misinformation and artificial intelligence? Is it as simple as Will's kind of example of what already exists when it comes to videos that can be edited and we and his example of, of what was going on with his experience? Or is this some kind of new novel challenge that's going to require a, a new way of thinking about truth and misinformation? Well, I think we need to be very careful about where we place the burden to deal with AI misinfo. And I think starting off, we may be putting it in the wrong place on the generative AI tools themselves, which has problematic implications for speech or the use of these tools uh, for expressive purposes. Coming out of peak platform world, maybe 2016, 2018, we have a set of expectations attending disinfo, how to combat it, who should combat it, which might make sense for Facebook when they have a distribution network with two point some billion people in it. We didn't have these expectations back when Photoshop came out in the late 90s. And now, as these generative tools come out and allow us on paper to create all sorts of wild images, true, false, otherwise, um, you know, maybe intended to mislead or simply intended for fun, um, we need to be very careful about taking expectations for platforms, expectations that might be reasonable for distribution networks, and placing them onto generative tools which aren't doing the publishing. When I create an image in Dolly, whether it's real, fake, whatever, it's not automatically published anywhere. I have to take it and upload it to some platform or send it to someone. And I think the onus to combat disinfo or slow the spread of false images should come in there, not landing on Dolly to prevent me from creating a false picture of Napoleon building the pyramids in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be great in 30 years when the Supreme Court addresses the question uh, to get some <laughs> answers, but I, I think there are some unique, uh, there are some unique issues, and I mean, I, I come at it a lot from the defamation arena, and there have been a lot of really interesting questions about, you know, if AI defames you when you query your name, um, and it's bound to do, it has defamed people, it has a lot of false information. I, when ChatGPT came out, I asked it for my bio, and it said that I was an admiral who was the head of the Navy JAG Corps, which is a national security <laughs> threat, if that was the case. Uh, but, I mean, that obviously is not defamatory, but for other people, there's much worse things. They say they were involved in scandals. Um, in terms of, I, I think, the damage question, especially if AI has a certain reputation of making these errors, I think it raises some interesting just common law defamation questions as well. Uh, I think you also have the Section 230 issue, which there was like a few weeks when I just, every day I was getting a call from a reporter asking, does Section 230 cover 
AI. Well, it, I mean, that's a, there's not a yes or no answer, especially because courts haven't weighed in, but it's very case specific. So um, I think the one other issue for AI, which is gonna be really fascinating, and this comes up in the sort of the foreign malign intelligence or information operations as well, is that the Supreme Court has held there's a right to receive information. So, um, I mean, this goes back to the 1960s, but even if you were to impose regulations on what AI can produce because you find that the AI doesn't have First Amendment rights, um, it still gets to what about the person who would be receiving it and what would their rights be. So, I mean, that's a long way of saying that I, I think that this is gonna take a while to get sorted out, but um, I, I think there are some other considerations that aren't being discussed as much. Just a couple of quick things. Um, so Jeff touched on who's the speaker with rights under the First Amendment? And that's the, the sort of starting question. Is it the person who set up the AI system is it the person who asked the question or instructed the AI program to spit something out, making Jeff an admiral? Congratulations. Uh, or is it the person who then publishes the information, by which I mean not you're a technical publisher, but puts it out there to share with the recipients? Uh, so that's, that's sort of the first step. Uh, my off-the-cuff reaction is probably the publisher, but there are steps before that as well. Um, in every case of a new kind of media, going back to at least the 19th century, uh, the court has been asked to throw the First Amendment out and come out with a different form of analysis because this is just so dangerous. And every time the court has declined and said, no, the, you know, the First Amendment applies to all modes of communication. And I suspect that that's where they're going to come out now even though the details may be trickier than with these, some of these other forms because, and I'm no expert on AI or computers, but I do think that uh, from everything I read, it is harder and harder every day to figure out what is fake in AI and to distinguish it uh, for the people with the technical uh, equipment and skills and not just for the recipient of the information. Um, so we may need some new tools that are consistent with First Amendment doctrine. Great. Well, I would like to turn to some audience Q&A at this time. Uh, for those of you who are in the room with us, I am going to ask that you please uh, speak clearly and directly into the microphone and that you also announce your name and affiliation uh, before you ask your question. So we'll go. hole where people go in like if you're OAN and you stay there 24 hours a day no outside light ever comes in um, when is there a point at which we can say the marketplace of ideas is it's an obsolete concept it no longer applies I, I, I don't think it would turn on you know how much of any one market good some uh, listener decides to consume um, you know, I think we can look at, at lots of other products that people overconsume, whether it's video games or certain kinds of food, and we don't see those markets as broken just because someone's preferences are, are a little out of whack. Um, I do think that shows us something about disinfo and how we should approach it um, or where the responsibility for 
acting on it should, should lie that Jeff gets into in his book. Um, we rarely uh, believe or certainly don't listen to, for 12 hours a day to misinformation that we don't already agree with. Um, and, and so when we're looking at how people act after imbibing misinfo, um, we need to understand that you know, they, they had a reason to believe, to hold, hold these um, views in the first place, and their actions are therefore on them in the same way as choosing to consume this sort of media for hours on end is, is on them. I'd like to turn to one of our online questions to, to make sure I'm kind of evenly dividing the, the time here. Uh, this question asks, there's of course the famous statement, if the truth shall make us free. If this is accurate, then what must we as users do to seek and find truth? What is the relation to the growing amount of electronic communications to knowing truth? And is language still adequate for finding truth, or has our world become much more intricate than words can handle? How much time do we have? <laughs> right. I was gonna say, I'll do, let you do, answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I agree that we must all individually seek truth and try to acquire the tools for that, and some of them are things that have been talked about a long time, which some are in Jeff's books, you know, learn critical thinking, read widely, read things, or maybe watch things that challenge your views. Um, you don't have to do that all day long, but check them out. Um, and read skeptically, and um, try to speak truth, which includes not only what you say about your own beliefs, but uh, challenging others in, in civic discourse. Now, these are all skills that are, appear to be widely lacking right now, uh, but the search is certainly worth it. Will or Jeff, any, any thoughts on that the, wasn't the search for, for truth? <laughs> I don't think there's a legal answer to that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's not as much of a legal issue. I mean, I, I'm a former journalist in my first job out of college in 2001 was at a metropolitan newspaper that at the time had about 400 journalists and now I think it might have 40. And I think it's impossible to look at the misinformation debate without looking at what's happened to institutional media because there was, when we talk about the importance of trust, um, it's not just in government, it's that there was a trusted local source that would go to your kids' sports games and cover them and go to city council meetings. And um, there are thousands of communities that are known as news deserts now where you don't have anyone covering, covering the city council and you might just see a post from one of their friends on Facebook or something like that. So I think that that's again, uh, I mean, the only way that becomes a legal answer is if we start talking about government subsidies and tax credits, which I think are very worthy of discussion, um, not terribly popular, and I think both among politicians and journalists because there's concerns about independence, but I think it's a real crisis that we have to deal with. I guess I would only add that in a relative sense, text has been around for quite a while and video and recorded audio are incredibly new mediums, even if we've had them for all of our lives. 
So the, I guess you would say, vocabulary that we have for critiquing something like emotionally manipulative text or half-truth in text is far more developed than anything we've come up with for critiquing manipulative podcasting or live streaming or even produced published film. Um, so I expect as a society um, that we'll get better at that as time goes on in the same way as we've honed literary criticism over literally hundreds of years. Um, but it, it will take time. I'll turn to another question from our, our audience. Um, hi, this is, I'm going to adjust this one to Catherine. Uh, oh, my name's Deborah Weiss, I'm a lawyer. I used to do a lot of free speech advocacy, but I haven't really been following the case on the guy with the meme who was uh, prosecuted, if you could talk about that. And then, you know, since you raised the issue of, in Europe, they're arrested for satire, is it happening here now? And for Will, I want to ask the question of, um, since you raised the issue of how many less cookbooks we'd have if they had to go out and check all the mushrooms themselves. Um, just because I know Cato folks love Donald Trump so much, I'm going to ask if, don't you think the same thing happened with Donald Trump Jr., who was, when, when they were, uh, I, I'm not following these cases closely, but charged or, or prose not prosecuted, I don't think it was criminal, for listening to their accounting firm, say, and they were saying, oh, the accounting firm was wrong. Same thing with Jenna Ellis, who listened to, to the legal information from the people that she knew. So those are my two questions. I'm sorry, I'm not sure what the question was. Your question, if, if you could just talk about, are you familiar with that case where somebody was arrested with the meme for yes. the satire? Because you were saying how in, in we have the First Amendment here, which protects satire and opinion, but in Europe they have more restrictive laws, and I'm pointing to this case and asking you if those restrictions are coming here even erroneously? Um, they should not be coming here. You sh should not be. Just, just give us the details, because I may be thinking. Are we talking about Ricky Vaughn? Yeah, OK. Will, do you want to his, give a? What's his other name? Um, He's actually in, he's actually in jail now. It was somebody who wrote a sarcastic meme on social he's media. In jail here. Yes. Oh, that's, okay. I'm not familiar with okay. that. That he was jailed. I knew of memes that were taken down. So I'll I'll, oh, I'll so, handle oh, that. Oh, okay. Um, Thank you, Will. I'm sorry. So a fellow fellow named Ricky Vaughn, or pseudonymously going as Ricky Vaughn on Twitter back in around the 2016 election. Uh, posted a series of memes alleging that you could text to vote for Hillary Clinton. Oh. And yes. he was charged, I believe, with um, a, a conspiracy to violate civil rights by interfering with people's right to vote uh, by misinforming them about how to cast a vote. Um, and he's not in jail yet. He has been sentenced, but he's going to appeal. Um, so this is this is a First Amendment case that's uh, you know might end up at the Supreme Court, if not just the district court level, before too long. Um, I think it is, in a way, a, a 
you know, kind of the, the new frontier of First Amendment law. Now I know what you're talking about. I'm so sorry. Um, and, and I just want to distinguish that a little bit because it uh, appears from uh, some Supreme Court doctrine and lower court doctrine, and this is in Rick Hazen's work about elections, <coughs> it is illegal and can be illegal under the First Amendment to misinform people about the mechanics of voting <coughs> because it deprives them of their vote. So if you tell them your uh, polling place has been changed and you have to go from Chicago to Detroit to vote or even across town and they get there at the end of the day and they discover that's not where they're voting or you tell them you can vote online, just click here, that is a crime. It's electoral interference. It is not protected as free speech. It's not like saying you shouldn't even bother to vote because there's no difference between the candidates. So I'm sorry. Will. Yeah, no. I mean, I I'm um, more willing to to at least, if not give him the benefit of the doubt, um, wall off that that kind of prosecution more from a cost benefit standpoint than anything else. Uh, these sorts of jokes around you know, Republicans vote on Wednesday, whatever, have been going around for years and years. And prosecuting, I think, anybody, but especially stepping in and finding a right-winger to prosecute, where there were TikToks floating around on the other side. Now, whether they were shared as widely or distributed with the same intentions, who knows? But it feels like the benefit to our society in punishing him and prohibiting that kind of speech is pretty minimal, where the, the sense of unfairness that it creates is potentially much more harmful to our, our democratic process. Um, at the end of the day, I think we can handle that kind of false speech as a, as a political culture, um, but we'll, we'll see as it moves through the courts. I, I, I think we've got to get to another <laughs> round of questions. I'm, I'm sorry. I know, I'm, I'm not familiar with the kind of what was passed to Trump Jr. around his business dealings. Um, we can chat later. So I, I do want to end with a, a question from online before I wrap us up. And I asked the question about AI as an emerging technology and how this debate over misinformation might come into play there. Jeff, your book does an excellent job, of course, tracing the history of, of how this debate has occurred in the past. But online, we have the question of, could some of these debates about uh, regulation of misinformation online spill over as a backdoor to censorship offline of books or newspapers, et cetera? Yes. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> Would you care uh, to elaborate? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that there, and I mean, the Supreme Court in 1997 very forcefully articulated that the internet receives the full scope of First Amendment protections that a book publisher or newspaper does. Uh, and while the federal government was trying to say, no, it's more like a broadcaster where the FCC can impose more regulations. And um, so I, I think, at least as of now, I think that any of any of the current cases that are pending before the Supreme Court, we have a few involving the internet, they could have impacts beyond the internet. I think what actually could become more dangerous, and I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about it, is if the Supreme Court in any of these cases reconsiders that 1997 ruling and says the internet actually 
is more like broadcast. It's so, because it's so pervasive that we need to impose more regulations. And I think because the internet's so central, I think that could have a really severe impact on our ability to receive information. Will and Catherine, anything to add? Um, I think the difference in speed between the online world and the, the offline will always present a problem for um, attempts to generally regulate, say, the, the right of reply or creating opportunities to immediately publish counter speech online versus off. Um, in order to be effective online in, in getting that notice up there, you need to move at a speed that would be, um, you know, a, a newspaper can't publish a special edition just to, to correct something. But online, that's very much what, what you're doing, what you might expect a publisher to do. Um, and so there's certainly danger of, of spillover, um, but really thinking about how a regulation intended for one medium or one uh, speed of velocity of communication might affect the other is, is the way to go. about in his book that the disparity of uh, resources and ability to reach large numbers of people uh, is not really uh, that we saw in classical media with response to things like defamation is not really diminished on the internet though we might have initially thought it would be uh, because people have different um, levels of contact uh, so if you're Britney Spears or Kim Kardashian, and you put out your answer, you're going to reach millions of people. If you're me, you're not. Um, and if you're somebody who doesn't get to appear at Cato, you're going to reach maybe even fewer people than I do. Um, so uh, where it once took money and ads and all kinds of things, uh, we still don't have equal opportunity to respond. And so I think the classical doctrine is, is in place. Uh, much more than the concerns that, that Will is pointing to. Well, thank you so much for an excellent conversation around an important and timely topic. If our audience could join me in, in thanking our panelists for, for being here.